We come now to chapter 6, the body. So <coughs> this is um, finally getting on to the actual uh, meditation practices relating to the, uh, the four Satipatthanas. So firstly, the body contemplations. Starting with this chapter, I will consider the actual meditation practices described in the Satipatthana Sutta. The practices listed under the first Satipatthana, contemplation of the body, comprise awareness of breathing, awareness of bodily postures, clear knowledge in regard to bodily activities, analysis of the body into its anatomical parts, analysis of the body into its elementary qualities, and contemplation of a dead body in nine consecutive stages of decay. I will examine each of these meditation practices in turn after an introductory assessment of body contemplation in general. The sequence of the body contemplations is progressive, beginning with the more obvious and basic aspects of the body and continuing towards a more detailed and analytical understanding of the nature of the body. This pattern becomes all the more evident if one transposes mindfulness of breathing from the first position in the list of those various contemplations. If you transpose that from the first position to the third, uh, that is, after awareness of postures and clear knowledge in regard to bodily activities. A position that it assumes in the Chinese Majjama Agama and in two other versions of the, of the Satipatthana, also from the northern tradition. So uh, that's to say that in those uh, northern tradition uh, sutras, the Chinese Majjama Agama, and the other two, which are called the Pancha Vingsha, Vingshati Saharishrika, Prajnaparamita, and the Shariputra Abhidharma. Just for those of you who wanted to have the detail. So... Um, in those, you have, first of all, four postures, then bodily activities, then mindfulness of breathing, then the anatomical parts, then the four elements, and then the corpse in decay. So that anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing, is sort of bumped up into the, the third position, and it begins instead with the, the four postures. Um, he doesn't at any point give any sort of theory as to why anapanasati got... Uh, shunted to the front in the Pali or, or why that changes but it's in, in all those northern tradition uh, collections you, uh, you have the um, mindfulness of breathing in that third position and it only is in the first position in the, in the Pali in the southern Buddhist uh, scriptures through this shift in position awareness of the body's postures and clear knowledge of activities would precede mindfulness of breathing rather than following it, as they do in the Pali versions. Awareness of the four postures, that's sitting, standing, walking and lying down, just in case you're wondering. Awareness of the four postures and clear knowledge of activities, that is, when it says activities, that's moving forward, moving backwards, stretching, bending, uh, and um, reaching for something, um, and uh, <coughs> extending the arm, or flexing the arms, and so on and so forth. So body, bodily activities. 
Clear knowledge of activities can be characterized as simpler and more rudimentary forms of contemplation than the other body contemplations. Taking into consideration their more elementary character, it seems reasonable to place them at the beginning of a cultivation of Satipatthana as convenient ways to build up a foundation in Sati. This, however, does not imply that in actual practice mindfulness of breathing needs always to be preceded by awareness of postures and clear knowledge of activities, since mindfulness of the breath can also be followed by mindfulness of one's postures and activities. So he's saying that um, in a, uh, to his point of view, and I would uh, say it, that makes a lot of sense, that it seems more reasonable to start off the, the, the description of the, uh, the progression of, of contemplations with the, the posture of the body, and whether you're sitting, standing, walking or lying down, but um, there's also, you can see, a, a logic of why you might start with, uh, with uh, the breath as a, a, a concentration exercise. Um, that uh, he doesn't go into speculation about uh, uh, exactly why that might, that might be, but it's certainly the case that mindfulness of breathing is, in terms of, of meditation, bhavana is the um, sort of absolutely the. A sort of uh, most common and foundational uh, form of meditation practice, uh, a, um, and it has a, a pretty much a unique position in the um, in the Pali Canon as a a, a, a meditation method that is uh, encouraged for as being suitable for most people, and which also the Buddha praised himself in saying that that um, he in personally enjoys and delights in just focusing his attention. On the breath, it's a, 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 a pleasant abiding here and now, and so that it's um, something that has a, 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 a unique uh, role within the, the aspects of, of mind training. Awareness of postures and clear knowledge of activities are predominantly concerned with the body in action. In comparison, the remaining exercises examine the body in a more static manner, analysing it into its constituent components from anatomical, material and temporal perspectives, by the latter by focusing on its disintegration after death. In this context, mindfulness of breathing has a transitional role, since although it is traditionally carried out in the stable sitting posture, it is still concerned with an active aspect of the body, namely the process of breathing. And so uh, um, following up that point about how it makes uh, sense um, using the northern tradition format, you have the first couple of, of reflections about the body. from um, Is it standing? Is it sitting? Is it walking? Is it lying down? And then also what, what is it doing? Are you reaching for something? Are you, um, uh, are you, are you bending? Are you stretching? Are you eating something? Are you uh, washing your hands? Are you going to the, the toilet? Uh, what what are you what are you doing with the body? What's uh, what's his activities uh, at the present time? So uh, then the um, the breathing, as he said, makes a a, a, um, a a convenient and appropriate transition. So it's still to do with the body in a state of change and something that the body is doing. But rather than analyzing the components of the body, it's still the body in action, but it's uh, a very um, sort of stable and um, uh, very say, predictable or um, very, very simple action. When it, when mindfulness of breathing is shifted to the third position, 
Mindfulness of breathing becomes the first in a series of practices conducted mainly in the sitting posture. In fact, the proper sitting posture is described in detail only in the instructions for mindfulness of breathing. Since awareness of the four postures and clear knowledge in regard to bodily activities are forms of contemplation that take place in different postures, it makes sense to introduce the sitting posture only when it becomes relevant. This is the case for mindfulness of breathing and the remaining exercises, whose comparative subtlety requires a fairly stable posture, thereby facilitating the development of deeper states, deeper degrees of concentration. By shifting mindfulness of breathing to the third position, the description of the sitting posture also moves to the most convenient position within the body contemplations. So uh, that, as, uh, as you probably can understand, is saying that the, the detail of how to sit or what's the, the appropriate posture for um, practicing mindfulness of breathing, that's only described in detail and before that particular satipatthana, so it, uh, it fits in very neatly at that place. The body contemplations begin with an emphasis on knowing, pajanati, sampajanakari. In the two exercises concerned with bodily postures and activities, and in the first two steps of mindfulness of breathing, so he's saying that the verb that's used to to know for those um, uh, the beginning sections, so the two kinds of bodily activities, the four postures and the bodily activities, and then the first half of the contemplations of the mindfulness of breathing, the verbs pajanati and sampajanakari, those are the, the verbs that are used to describe um, the investigation or, or the, um, the, how that contemplation is carried out, knowing. Subsequent exercises introduce slightly different methods of contemplation. The third and fourth steps of mindfulness of breathing, that's like the second half of those uh, mindfulness of breathing aspects, are concerned with training, sikhati. Then the two bodily analyses, uh, that's the um, body in terms of its anatomical parts and in terms of the four elements, earth, water, fire and wind. That uh, is, um, the contemplation is, uh, is described as pachavekati, or considering. And then lastly, the contemplation of a corpse in decay, in decay is described with comparing, upasangharati. This change in the choice of verbs underscores a progression from comparatively simple acts of observation to more sophisticated forms of analysis. Here again, mindfulness of breathing assumes a transitional role with its first steps partaking of the character of the two contemplations of postures and activities, while its third and fourth steps can be grouped together with the other three contemplations. So does that make sense, what he's talking about there? Speak up if it's not clear. Okay, good. Uh, except for awareness of the four postures and clear knowledge in regard to activities, each of the other body contemplations is illustrated by a simile. These similes compare mindfulness of breathing to a turner at his lathe, contemplation of the anatomical parts to examining a bag full of grains, and contemplation of the four elements to butchering a cow. The last exercise employs mental images of a body in various stages of decay. 
Although these, although these stages of decay cannot be reckoned as similes, the use of mental imagery here parallels the similes given in the other three exercises. These similes and mental images point to an additional degree of affinity between mindfulness of breathing and the final three body contemplations, and thereby further support the idea of presenting them together by shifting mindfulness of breathing to the third position in the sequence of the body contemplations. So he really likes the idea of bumping it up to the, <laughs> the third place. So also um, in terms of that, um, the um, the the say perception of the body, um, whether it's sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, or activities of of eating, chewing, um, moving forwards, moving backwards, and so on. Um, these are fairly uh, visible, tangible, kind of obvious things. They don't need a simile because we we know what it's like to to reach for something, you know, pick something up. There's no real simile needed, and then simil uh, similarly, with the um, uh, the decay of the body. That's uh, those are, are, are clear um, mental images of the body in the state of decay, just freshly dead or dead for a few days or dead for a few weeks, and the body rotting and then uh, skeleton and bones and so on. And then the other ones, um, then the the similes are used to illustrate those uh, a bit more clearly. So um, a turner. Um, so someone who's working on a lathe where you have a piece of wood on a, uh, on a lathe, which means a, um, you have a, a sort of a point uh, uh, at either end of a, of a length of wood and, uh, and it spins around and then you have a, a chisel or a knife, a sharp blade, that then as the, the wood turns on its spindle, then you can shape, uh, shape the wood. So you'd make like a, a round chair leg or a... Um, a striker for your meditation bell or um, any, um, uh, say, um, wooden object, that, or it can be metal too, uh, um, but uh, <coughs> usually it would be wood that uh, that's uh, the, uh, symbolizing the sense of, of careful application of the, the, the chisel or the, the blade as the wood turns and forming the exact shape in the wood that, that you want to be there uh, by the pressure that you place, the angle of the blade and, and how fast the, the spindle is turning. So that's, a, that's um, the image that's used for mindfulness of breathing, the, a turner working on a lathe. The anatomical parts one is um, a, um, uh, the, the Buddha says to imagine a, um, a bag full of various different kinds of, of beans, of um, uh, say of rice, of hill rice, of, uh, of of white rice, of red rice, of kidney beans, of mung beans, uh, dookie beans, or various different kinds of beans, and then uh, looking in the sack and say, oh, this is a mung bean, this is an dookie bean, this is a, a this is red rice, this is hill rice, this is white rice. So simply identifying the the parts of your own body uh, uh, with the same kind of um, matter-of-fact, ordinary, everyday distinction. Okay, that's a kidney, that's a heart, that's a bit of skin, that's a tooth, that's a, uh, that's a, f uh, a toenail. Just uh, as, um, uh, say, the, as simply and matter-of-factly as you identify the different kinds of beans and rice grains and such like, just all jumbled up together in a, in a bag. And then the... Uh, the um, the um, the last one is the image of butchering a cow at the crossroads. Again, nowadays we don't do a lot of cow butchering out on the street, <laughs> but it seemingly it happened in the Buddha's time quite a lot that you'd, you'd uh, the a butcher would kill a, a cow and then chop it up and then because they didn't have refrigeration, 
and India is a hot country. Uh, I think you'd aim to sell the, the, the bits of the cow to be eaten as soon as possible. So I guess that's why you would do it at the crossroads. So as many people can come and, uh, and you can uh, sell uh, the meat um, as quickly as possible. But then the, the, um, the different parts of the, of the cow sort of d divided up like the four elements of the earth element, solidity, uh, the, uh, the water element, cohesion, uh, the fire element, heat, and the life force, and then the air element, vibration. But uh, seeing the body in those an uh, anatomical parts compared to, to chopping up a cow and the different parts of the cow um, being available at the, uh, at the crossroads. Yes, please. The turner. Just like the long bed is like a long, he knows like, like the turner knows it a long term, and it's like a short term. Mm -hmm. What would what would a long term be in that? In that um, well, uh, it's it's one of those things that people have been debating about for many years. But my guess, you know, this is always it's like if you've if you've got um, if you got a, a piece of wood on a on a spindle, you know, on the lathe, it's called a lathe, L A T H E, a lathe. If you've got a thin part, then um, it's a it's a short turn. You only needs to um, there, there's there's not much wood to cut as it as it goes around. If it's a fat part, then it, you need to cut a lot more wood as it goes around. So if it's if it sort of bow, bows out in the middle and then and then forms and uh, a short turn, this is just my guess, is that if it's a if it's a thin part of the the piece of wood you're working on, then it'll just you get round very quickly. If it's a fat part, then it will take a, a bit longer to to cut around it. That's my guess. <laughs> if anyone, anyone's got any better opinions, yes. Nick. Oh, there you are. Yes, indeed. Yeah. The longer the piece of wood, mm -hmm. the longer you've got to carry on paying attention to your stroke as you move across. Oh, right. Of course, because of the. Of the because of the length, you've got to sustain attention. A practice to do a long term. Ah, so it's not just in a single spot, no, no, but if you're doing like a like a chair leg Correct. with like a, a foot of that's all going to be absolutely parallel. Be the table, for ah, thank you. There you go. There are still some turners around. <laughs> yes. The Agama is the uh, uh, the Chinese um, scriptures, uh, and they're the uh, the Agamas are the, uh, the the Chinese scriptures that directly relate to the Pali Canon. So Agama, in, I think in Chinese, means ancient. Have we got Anagarika crystal? Is that right? Agama means ancient or old. You don't know. <laughs> Well, my understanding was it's a Chinese word. Maybe it's an old Chinese word for, for meaning ancient or uh, something like ancient or original or or old, something like of that nature. So it's only a, a, a small part of the the Chinese um, Sutra Pitaka is the one section that's the, the Agamas, and they they mostly line up. You can see where they uh, uh, connect with the with the Pali scriptures from the Majjhima Nikaya or the Diganikaya, the long discourses, the middle length discourses, or like the Dhammapada and uh, and that you can see where they they have parallels. 
That's my understanding of what the arguments are. Okay. So I, I fully support um, Venerable Analia's project to <laughs> bump up the uh, the Anapanasati to the third position. It does it does make sense, but who knows how it uh, it got arranged in this way? Uh, but uh, um, it, uh, it uh, you have a bit of a difference between the two recensions, but uh, it does make sense in terms of a of a natural progression to have that as uh, the third consideration. Yes. From our viewpoint, it, it's very difficult to, to keep up the mindfulness on the positions, uh, body postures, and activities if you don't have a base in like sitting, sitting meditation, in mindfulness and breathing. So, so I wonder if that was the, the reason behind. Yeah, could be. It yeah. seems seems reasonable if you take them up together instead of like in a sequence mm-hmm. because they support each other very much. I, I found at least. Yeah, and also that's a good point because um, there are quite a number of things um, like the the eight the eight factors of the eightfold path. Sometimes they're represented as a clear sequence, like you know, right view comes first, and then right view, right right intention, um, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and it's it's sort of spelled out as a sequence. You know, A B C D E F G. Um, but other times they are they're not represented as a sequence, but they're rather sort of interrelated factors that support and affect each other in different ways. Similarly, with the the seven factors of enlightenment, the the bojanga, that sometimes they're represented as a clear sequence, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and other times they're represented as sort of interrelated factors that support each other in in different ways. So it it uh, it could easily be exactly the same way that you you can consider them as a sequence, but you, it's not. Uh, necessarily, the the case you have to have a, a fixed order that that's the only the only sort of right and appropriate way. And and as as, uh, as I was just saying, also that mindfulness of breathing is the the foundational practice for developing concentration and stability of attention. So that that um, that supports that same kind of point of view. The instruction for contemplating the anatomical parts employs the word impure, asuchi, which betrays a certain degree of evaluation inherent in this type of practice. In a passage from the Anguttara Nikaya, contemplation of the anatomical parts and of a corpse in decay come under the recollection, anusati category. This evokes sati's connotations of memory and shows that these two contemplations imply, to some extent, a form of practice which is not confined to bare awareness only. So there's an evaluation of, of that, that as impure. Um, so that will be definitely from a, a human perspective that the, the, um, the body parts, you know, if they're separated from the body and you can actually smell them or um, you're touching them, that they're, they're all of the, the fluids that are associated with them the smells and the textures associated would uh, you could use a word impure to describe that the average um, way that uh, people relate to dead bodies or rotting bodies or body parts and such like so as he said it's not just a, a bare a, a bare awareness but there's there is a an element of evaluation there The breadth of body contemplation, quote-unquote, as a Satipatthana, becomes even more extensive in the Chinese version found in the Majjhima Agama, 
which adds several meditations to those described in the Pali discourses. Surprisingly, at least at first sight, the Majjhima Agama counts the development of the four absorptions, the four jhanas, as body contemplations. However, the positioning of the four absorptions under body contemplation has a parallel in the Kayagata Sati Sutta, the, that's the mindfulness of the body sutta of the Pali Canon, which also directs awareness to the effect these absorptions have on the physical body. So I thought I, I'd read um, a passage out, the relevant passage. As this also, this relates to um, some comments that we were making uh, a little while ago about um, some some views about jhana that say the, the uh, if the mind's in in a state of absorption, there's absolutely no perception of the of the body or the senses whatsoever. But this this, this passage in particular um, suggests that that's the you know that's not uh, that's not really the case. And so this is the um, uh, mindfulness of the body sutta. Uh, number 119 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Um, so he's describing, first of all, first jhana, uh, first jhana accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. He makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion drench, steep, fill and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Just as a skilled bathman or a bathman's apprentice heaps bath powder in a metal basin and sprinkling it gradually with water kneads it till the moisture wets his ball of bath powder, soaks it and pervades it inside and out, yet the ball itself does not ooze, so too a bhikkhu makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion drench, steep, fill and pervade this body. And so uh, again it's another one of those things, bath powder? <laughs> How does that work? But obviously it was some kind of um, familiar uh, uh, say, uh, household um, uh, cleansing method that uh, people used and uh, that would have uh, held together um, in a way like a, a sponge that we would use uh, today but somehow you take powder and you knead it, you knead it together like the, the um, dough of bread and it would hold water like a like the, the dough of a, of, a, of a loaf of bread that's being kneaded to knead as in K-N-E-A-D so that's like rubbing together like that kneading the, the dough of some bread so then second jhana describes um, has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of concentration he makes the rapture and pleasure born of concentration drench, steep, fill and pervade this body so there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Just as though there were a lake whose waters welled up from below and it had no inflow from the east, west, north or south and would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain, then the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill and pervade the lake so there will be no part of the whole lake unpervaded by cool water. So too, a bhikkhu makes the rapture and pleasure born of concentration, drench, steep, fill and pervade this body. Then third jhana um, says, um, Just as in a pond of, uh, of blue, white or red lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water thrive immersed in the water without rising out of it. And cool water drenches, steeps, 
fills and pervades them to their tips and their roots, so that there is no part of the, all those lotuses unpervaded by cool water. So too, a bhikkhu makes the pleasure divested of rapture, drench, steep, fill and pervade this body, so there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the pleasure divested of rapture. And then the last one is a little bit strange, but um, still involves the body. This is for fourth jhana. He sits pervading this body with a pure bright mind, so there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the pure bright mind. Just as though a man were sitting covered from head down with a white cloth, so there would be no part of his whole body not covered by the white cloth, so too a bhikkhu sits pervading this body with a pure bright mind, so there is no part of his body unpervaded by the pure bright mind. So those are, uh, in, in the Chinese um, scripture, those are regarded as part of the body contemplation, which is a, an interesting the extension of the, the body contemplations that, um, for the, that we have in the, the Pali Satipatthana, but it's also you know, very much involving the, the body and the, the feeling of the presence of the body, and also knowing the body in a, in a, from a... Um, so the other end of the, the spectrum from the asuchi or the impure, so in a way knowing the body through this very sort of bright and purified and um, joyful uh, uh, and sort of uh, luminous uh, experience, rapturous. So let's see. Um, Thus it is not too far-fetched to take the physical bliss experienced during absorption as an object of contemplation of the body. Nevertheless, several of the additional contemplations in the Majjhima Agama do not fit well into body contemplation, but seem rather to be the outcome of a progressive assimilation of other practices under this heading. So the other ones that are listed in, in that um, seem to be a bit more remote, not particularly connected to the body at all. The Chinese Ekotra Agama version, on the other hand, contains only four body contemplations in total. Awareness of the anatomical parts, of the four elements, of a rotting corpse, and a contemplation of the various bodily orifices together with the impure liquids discharged by them. An even more abridged version can be found in the Pali Vibhanga, which lists only contemplation of the anatomical constitution under this Satipatthana. The reason for these omissions, quote-unquote, are open to conjecture. That means there's lots of opinions about them. <laughs> exactly why the different lists are some are longer, some are shorter, and what they leave out, what they choose to keep in, and so on. Open to conjecture, a very handy phrase to use. But what remains as the unanimously accepted core of the contemplation of the body in all the different versions is a thorough investigation of its anatomical constitution. This gives a considerable degree of emphasis to this exercise, that is, looking at the body parts, even though it does involve some degree of evaluation and therefore seems different from the typical Satipatthana approach to contemplation. So that, uh, and uh, he's, um, in terms of evaluation, he's um, uh, saying how that uh, uh, the investigation of the um, the um, the aspects of the body um, uh, is involving this this sort of judgment of asuchi, uh, meaning impure, and uh, the 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 um, uh, 
the standard recitation that we do of this in our in our chanting book, then it says, uh, "This which is my body, from the soles of the feet up and down from the crown of the head, is a sealed bag of a skin filled with unattractive things." So that quality of unattractiveness, it is it is judgmental. It's saying, "Yeah, it's not attractive," but it's um, very much a, a counterpoint to the uh, the power of sexual desire that is say the the most um, potent obstructive force to, to liberation. The very first uh, sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, the first two suttas, um, and you have to adjust for gender preference, of course, but uh, the first two suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya, the, 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 the discourse is related by number, the Book of the Ones, the Buddha says, um, uh, uh, there, is, <coughs> the, uh, there is nothing more compelling to the mind of a man than the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch of a woman. Sutta number one. Sutta number two, there's nothing more compelling to the mind of a woman than the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch of a man. So people might uh, contest that or, or object to it, but uh, it's um, through the, um, our, ex- our own experience and seeing the, the power of, of sexual desire, the way that the, the, uh, the eye and the senses are looking for uh, sexual opportunity or judging others in terms of, of competition or attractive possibilities or... Um, jealousy and uh, and so forth that that's an extraordinarily potent force in in nature and um that uh, and so in, and and particularly as many of these discourses were uh, being given to people who are uh, consciously practicing celibacy the brahmacharya that uh, to me it's it, it's uh, one of the main reasons why this um uh, say evaluation is they use terms like unattractive or impure um and uh, particularly now nowadays in the sort of uh, politi- the, the climate of political correctness, they say, well, actually, they're not really unattractive. <laughs> they're, they're just what they are. You shouldn't make these pejorative statements uh, saying that they're impure or unattractive. A kidney is just a kidney. You know? <laughs> blood is just blood. It's just, uh, it is just what it is. But those kind of terms are there to counteract the extraordinarily powerful force of... of uh, sexual uh, desire which uh, operates on a very very uh, basic level as I'm, I'm sure uh, all of us or probably at least most of us uh, have, uh, have a, a sense for. It's also quite uh, significant that when someone takes on the, the, the novice precepts right there in the ordination ceremony yeah, as part of the, 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 and the Buddha established this from his own time you have the basic uh, contemplation of the external features of the body, uh, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. Kesaloma nakadantatacho. They are they're listed. Okay, this is this is your, the basis of your practice. Kesaloma nakadantatacho. These are the external features of the human body, and so on the one level, it, it helps you to uh, develop a, a a detachment from self-view, like recognizing that. That person in the mirror looking back at you—that uh, uh, is just hair of the head, hair of the head, hair, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. How much time, energy, and effort have we spent being concerned about hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin? How much money have, have we spent? Uh, I, I occasionally I, I, I sort of take note of the amount of of, um, of cash that is spent per year um, on. Like things like plastic surgery, I think that I haven't looked in a few years, and uh, but um, I think just before I left the states, 
it was uh, in 2010. I think I look, I, I can't remember exactly. I think it was at the beginning of 2010, I saw a figure of $90 billion spent per annum just in the USA on plastic surgery and weight loss products. $90 billion, with a B, per year on plastic surgery and weight loss products. That's like eating things you can eat to make you weigh less. That's a lot of money. <laughs> That's a huge slice of the economy on Kesaloma Nakadantatacho. Sometimes you see them all when you, go in, when you go into town, you see like the nail parlor and the hairdresser and the suntan, you know, the, you know, the, the tanning parlor. So you don't usually get the dentist there as well, but uh, you, sometimes you get at least Kesaloma, Naka and Tacho all side by side. So that, that um, so basically learning to develop uh, the cutting through a, a self-view internally, but also to, to unplug the habits of, of the mind, of, of judging others, of, oh, is this person attractive, are they unattractive, is this someone that, um, is there an opportunity there? Um, and uh, you might be thinking, I don't think like that. Oh, me? No, 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 perish the thought. Well, if that's the case, well, Satu. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yeah, my very first encounter with Ajahn Chah, which I've meditated on for the last uh, 30, oh, we are now 38 years. <laughs> so the very day I met him, um, uh, I uh, arrived at Wat Pananachat and um, I had no knowledge of Buddhism, no no experience of meditation, really, and uh, uh, never even heard of Ajahn Chah until the day before I got there. <coughs> so anyway, I was taken over to to visit um, uh, the uh, the main monastery. By this time, I'd been at Wat Chah for a few days, and I was really like, "This is amazing! This is wonderful! This is the best place in the world! This is so spiritual! It's so fantastic! This is exactly what I was looking for!" So very sort of gushingly enthused by this time. And I did think of myself as a very spiritual person. I was you know, traveling around Asia on my quest for, um, for spiritual uh, enlightenment and so on. And then there was this wonderful opportunity to be taken over to meet the Master. So I had my head somewhat filled with the kind of um, Carlos Castaneda meeting Don Juan the dynamics. And, and he's going to, you know, of course, I'll meet the Master and then he'll look at me and say, Ah, at last you've come. <laughs> <You know. coughs> As, as happens in Dharma talks and stories and such like. And, and did apparently happen with Ajahn Chah and his teacher, Ajahn Tongrat. Uh, when Ajahn Chah arrived on Tudong, came to Ajahn Tongrat's monastery, and he was, he was out in the front uh, of the monastery sweeping and said, Oh, Chah, you've arrived. Good. There was no phone call or no email. <laughs> it was just this young bhikkhu walking in through the gate, and uh, Ajahn Tongrat knew his name. I was expecting him. But anyway, so I was somewhat expecting this. And so I was taken over to meet, uh, meet the, the master. He was building a toilet at the time, out in the front, uh, uh, near the um, main um, temple building at uh, Wat Bapong. And so then uh, Ajahn Prabhakaro uh, introduced me and um, said, oh, this uh, fellow's um, from England. And uh, Ajahn Chah had been to, uh, to London and been to visiting England earlier that the, the previous year, in, in from May to July of seventy-seven, and this was in January of seventy-eight. And so, uh, 
uh, we're sort of kneeling on the on the ground in front. Ajahn Chah standing there with his cement trowel in his hand. Of course, I'm already to read in great significance in the fact he's building a toilet. You know, very humble, and, and uh, he's got this the cement trowel in his hand. Oh, this is you know very significant. You know, he's uh, you know my head was kind of full of all sorts of stuff in those days. So I'm waiting for the sort of the the at last you've come comment, and he looks at me and and then he said something in Thai which I couldn't understand and then I sort of turned to Ajahn Babako and he said and, and he said to him oh, oh this this young fellow who's living in London in, uh, and also he lives living in Hampstead I, I was uh, the last few months I was at uh, university I had a place in Primrose Hill parents of a friend of mine had that, rented out their basement so it was a even though it's a very posh district and we got there uh, on a very cheap rent so it's just at the bottom of um, kind of Camden Town Hampstead area and so uh, he said, oh, this uh, young fellow has been living in, uh, in London as well, and uh, he was <coughs> also in the Hampstead area. And then Ajahn Chah made this comment, and he just, uh, and I turned to Ajahn Prabhakara, who had a, kind of che- had a kind of cheesy smile on his face, and he said, uh, uh, the Ajahn says there's lots of pretty girls in Hampstead. <laughs> and he is not smiling. Like, I, you know, I can't. I can't really do inscrutable, but uh, <laughs> I'm very scrutable. But uh, Ajahn Chai is not smiling. That's kind of completely blank expression. <laughs> and so my head is going. But but he's not supposed to notice pretty girls. He's supposed to be an enlightened master. And why did he say that to me anyway? And what about the at last you've come thing? And I'm a spiritual person. I, I mean, pretty girls. I wouldn't notice pretty girls. I'm beyond all that. <laughs> So it's been a, a, a powerful and interesting contemplation for the last 38 years. Why did he say that? <laughs> but then I realized, oh, I know why he said that. Because even though my head was saying, I'm beyond all that, that my hormones were saying other things. And so that uh, <clears throat> it's um, important to be, to be very realistic and to acknowledge that, yeah, the, 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 the perceptions work in those ways. And the... The the gesture of going forth is accompanied by Kesaloma Nakadanta Tacho for very good reasons. Like that's your passport. You wanna <laughs> you wanna cross to the beyond? Okay, Kesaloma Nakadanta Tacho, here's your pass. <laughs> if you use this, you'll be able to get across. If you don't use this, well, good luck. <laughs> so that's uh, uh, the, I feel it's a very powerful sign also that this is Right there in the uh, the beginning of the um, Satipatthanas, that this contemplation of the body is is not only um, the first of the Satipatthanas, but also it's the most substantial. So that not just the body parts, but the whole um, Kayanupasana. It's pretty much as uh, as big as the other three Satipatthanas all put together. It covers a, a huge amount of of area, and so that this. Mindfulness of the body and developing this sort of a dispassionate relationship to the body, your own body and the bodies of others, is a, 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 an extraordinarily significant and, and a potent element to be uh, contemplated, to be understood. So, <clears throat> the reasons for these omissions are open to conjecture, but what remains as the unanimously accepted core of the contemplation of the body in all the different versions is a thorough investigation of its anatomical constitution. 
This gives a considerable degree of emphasis to this exercise, even though it does involve some degree of evaluation and therefore seems different from the typical Satipatthana approach to contemplation. So that's why it's got a bit of an extra sort of oomph behind it, evaluation, that it's, um, yeah, it's not just knowing with bare attention, there's a, there's a, uh, say, a, a reading into it. So even though a kidney is just a kidney, and it's a miraculous and wonderful thing, I'm really glad my kidneys are exactly as they are. They do a great job. Well done. But <laughs> the, uh, the way of picking them up, not just the kidneys, all the other body parts, is, is with this framework of asuchi, of uh, impure or unattractive, to counterbalance that sort of reptile brain um, uh, you know, reactivity of, ooh. <laughs> um, it's also kind of interesting that Ajahn Chah said, uh, you know, uh, because also Wat Pong was famous for having really, uh, uh, really awful food. Um, that so hunger, you know, basically every, we were pretty much all mal- malnourished. <laughs> so, so hunger was quite a significant feature of, of life in those days of the uh, 60s and 70s and 80s. The, the diet in northeast Thailand is a lot broader nowadays. But uh, once or twice Ajahn Chah commented, you know, when I start talking about body parts, talking about livers and kidneys and such like, I can, I can uh, tell some of you your mouths are watering already. <laughs> <laughs> so this is to be to develop dispassion, not to have you fantasizing about, uh, about curries of you know, various kinds. That, um, and he's not joking, you know. <laughs> so any uh, questions or comments or uh, considerations before we get on to the next section? The, um, yes. The Sutta, the, the Book of the Ones, it also mentions that I think it's I think it's in that Sutta that it's by paying attention to one's own feminine faculties or masculine faculties that one then pays attention to those things in others that you become. Um, then, and to me, that that's that's kind of a more useful contemplation in many ways because. Um, um, because it's, you know, if you pay attention internally to your, your femininity as a, as a faculty, not as, mm-hmm. a, as you know, a gender thing, or your masculinity, then, then you will find the opposite thing attractive. It will become more obvious, you will pay attention to that. But if you don't pay attention to these things internally, then you're not moved by those things externally. Hmm. I think it's in that situation that says that. Is that in the very first one? Mm, yeah, I think it, in that first about, section, yeah. Yeah, it talks about how there's nothing more potent than it. Mm-hmm. But then that, and then it goes on to, I think, to talk about this, you know, paying attention. Yeah, that does ring a faint bell, yeah. Yeah, because uh, we, we don't realise that, that we, are, we are identified with those qualities. And also in that list of the, uh, the indrias, yeah, the uh, contemplation of the, the uh, that in the um, vipassana bhumi chanting that we do for the funerals, the funeral chanting, the the basis of insight then itindriya, the feminine faculty, purusindriya, the male faculty, the um, jivatindriya, the, the the life force faculty. There they are things that you, you know, contemplating that and knowing that. So that, like anything, if you don't contemplate it, you don't know it. Then it has tends to have power over the mind if you know it. And you're aware of how it's functioning, then it uh, it becomes less powerful to color the and, and confuse the perceptions. 
There's also um, in the in the northern tradition um, in the what's uh, called the Sutra of Forty uh, Two Sections. Then there's a similar uh, a similar statement there to to this where the Buddha says. Uh, um, sexual desire is the most powerful force in the universe. If there was two two forces as powerful as this, there would be no hope for any being to escape from samsara. So, that's serious. <laughs> okay, this is serious. So it's a it's a bit more of a, a sort of dramatic way of speaking about it. But I think it is also important to to be um, ready to get your mind around the task yeah this is if this is not understood then there's uh, there's no hope of liberation if this is understood then then there's a possibility uh, again uh, some people might take exception to that but just uh, i feel it's uh, it's very useful to consider uh, that if the buddha makes a statement like that well where's that coming from or what uh, am i uh, underestimating the uh, this or am i just Sort of framing things in ways that fit my preferences, but or am I really uh, ready to get my mind around how this works and to um, to be able to see people in a completely um, uh, say uh, an open way and not judging uh, others by their um, attractiveness or unattractiveness or, or the physical features or to categorizing them in, in any particular uh, gender or evaluating. Uh, uh, People are according to those those qualities, and uh, and so that even if you think, well, hang on a minute. I mean, that's a, that's a Chinese sutra. Um, was that really the word of the Buddha, or did they just write that out in China? <laughs> like, well, uh, it, it's uh, these teachings are are put forth and and talked about by reputable and, and honourable people, and uh, I don't think that the Pali Canon has got the monopoly on wisdom and truth. So. Uh, I feel it's really worthwhile to consider those northern Buddhist sutras and teachings and uh, to also take them to heart and contemplate them. And so I think it's, it's useful to pick that kind of thing up and say, okay, what, what, does, that, uh, uh, what does that say to me? Or how, how do I work with that? Because it, in a way it's like uh, the uh, encouragement to, to, know, uh, to know the scale of, the, the, of what, you're, what you're getting involved in or, or what, you're, what the game is. So if you if you're standing at the bottom of a three thousand foot cliff and you go, whoa, that's a real, it's a big climb. Okay, well if you're gonna if you're gonna attempt to climb it, okay, well have I got my crampons? Have I got my ropes? Have I got my hammer and my my, my wedges? Okay, do I know how to climb? Okay, are we ready? Okay, <laughs> let's go. So you 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 uh, you are aware of the scale of the task, but then you can equip yourself. For that, you're, you're not surprised by that thing. I, was, I thought we were just going for a walk in the park. I'm not ready to climb 3,000 foot straight up. <laughs> but if you're, um, uh, I feel it's very compassionate to give these kind of teachings and to clarify that within the, the mind, because it's saying, okay, yeah, this is that's not a that's not a uh, uh, um, uh, a, a thing to gloss over, or to, if the Buddha said that, that, that there, if there was two forces this powerful, then there'd be no hope for any being to escape from samsara. Right. <laughs> so get uh, get prepared to you know, understand this, uh, or to approach that with a great deal of respect, 
and then then you have much more of a chance of of working with it uh, respectfully, like like standing at the bottom of Half Dome Peak in Yosemite, looking three thousand feet up. Going, oh, that's a big cliff. <laughs> okay, well, let, let's just uh, let's begin, and then you're you're not underestimating what you're what you're working on, what you're working with, and you're in a sense ready for the. Uh, you're more ready for the for the challenge. Beside corpses and such things. I think it's just knowing, knowing and reflecting on your own gender and what aspects of your own feeling um, relate to that to that gender definition. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I've never seen it spelled out in any kind of scriptural way. It might be that... Uh, in the Visuddhi Magra, it says, "What is what is itindriya? You know, the feminine uh, faculty, and it is. And what is purusindriya? What is the masculinity faculty? So it might well be spelled out there, but I've never read the Visuddhi Magra from beginning to end. I just read different parts of it. But um, I, I, my experience of listening to Dhamma talks or and being around the forest tradition is, it's more like knowing that that faculty as you experience it within yourself, and that the masculinity faculty, so that you'd... And then there's a certain amount of comparing that with how you see that within yourself, also within, say, the animal world, the other people around you. Okay, how does... The, what's the masculinity faculty in, in, the, in the animal realm? You know, the, the male animals, what do they look like? Or in the, in the human realm, what are the, the characteristics that, that define what you think of as, as a male or how males function in relationship to each other? how females function in relationship to each other or between the genders. So I think it's that kind of observing natural forms and how the, the, the genders function in relationship to each other and also your personal experience of um, uh, of how you categorize that. But it's probably, there's a, several pages of the Visuddhi Magga. I don't know if there's any Visuddhi Magga experts in the house. Probably not. <laughs> in the Sanskrit tradition, there's a text, Sariputra and the goddess sometimes referred to as Kuan Yin and uh, Sariputra has a conversation where why do flowers stick to an arahant but not to a bodhisattva we won't go into that so 
and then it says that Bodhisattva goes on here. So then Sariputra says to her, the goddess, if you're such a perfectly enlightened, in a nice way, if you're such a perfectly enlightened uh, Bodhisattva, why did you take on female form? So then the goddess turns Sariputra into a woman and says, where's the woman? And Sariputra looks, and then he says, you've got me there. I can't find it. Then when he looked very deeply into himself, you know, and then she turns him back. Yeah, I think it's in the Lotus Sutra, yeah, if I remember correctly. Yeah, to uh, Sariputra and the goddess, you know. Yeah, I don't think it's Kuan Yin, but... Uh, no, it's not Kuan Yin, it's sometimes it's... It's, if it's in, I believe it's a chapter in the Lotus Sutra. <laughs> well, see if it happens to you. <laughs> you wake up in the morning and go, oh, she's different. <laughs> it's the same as, you know, enlightenment has no form. I mean, they mm-hmm. teach it that way. The minute you try to make it into a form, it couldn't be enlightenment. Mm-hmm. You know? so. Well, it's interesting also in, in Thailand, they refer to the monastic as, as the third gender. That uh, when you you take on the brahmacharya life, whether you happen to be a nun or a monk, it's, it's, they use this expression the the third gender, so that you're, <coughs> you're obviously just shaving your hair off and putting on robes doesn't change your perceptions altogether. But it's it's like a it's you, you sit in a, a slightly different role in the society as a brahma as a brahmacharyan, and that then the society sees you in a different way that you. You're stepping, you're deliberately stepping away from that. And the fact that we have the same, we shave our heads, we wear these sort of baggy, formless clothes that don't emphasize whether you, what shape your body is, but uh, uh, that that's sort of like a statement of, of, of uh, adopting the third gender mode. You think that's why in Pali there's no word, I think this is true, I'm setting myself up here, but there's no, maybe because it's a monastic. Language that there isn't a word for love, but then the Pali people say we don't have a word for love, we call it Maya, illusion. Like Metta is like a loving friendliness, it's not like love between man and woman, sort of. I think that's, it's, no. it's, that's not accurate. Is a Pali word for love? Yes. Between a man and a woman? Yes. What is it? Pia. Pia, okay, what's the that? P I Y A, like uh, that which is dear. So, in the metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, why do they call it mine? Illusion. Because it's the kind of books you read. (laughs) (laughs) No. That's not. That's not correct. I was just wondering when she said. That's what she said, she would call it Maya. I'll have to do some more research on that one then. Maya was the name of the Buddha's mother. Yeah. Okay, I think that's enough for today.